Well, we seem to have weathered the worst of uh, Storm Kieran, and in some of the coastal areas of the UK, people are putting life back together again. Uh, storms mess everything up. Uh, the wind blows a tree in, into a road, it rips a roof off a house. Uh, there was a story this time of a trampoline on a train track. Now, no one looks at that trampoline and thinks, oh, maybe we'll just leave it there. A train track is not where a trampoline belongs. Now, after the chaos comes the clear-up. 2 Corinthians is a sort of a clearing-up exercise. Something's where it's not supposed to be. That is, some of the Corinthian Christians aren't where they're supposed to be. And Paul is trying to put things right. Where they're supposed to be is those who've professed faith in the Lord Jesus is standing firm with Paul, backing his ministry, helping to spread his message, opening up their wallets, their homes, and their hearts to the advance of the gospel around Europe and beyond. And some of them in the church probably were. But some of them are standing where they shouldn't be standing, with preachers of a different gospel, a worldly message designed to appeal to the worldly mind. Now, others perhaps are hedging their bets with uh, one foot with these dodgy teachers, the superficial super apostles, and, and one foot uh, somewhere near the apostle Paul and trying to do the splits, neither in one camp nor the other. Now, of course, we're reading this uh, 2,000 years later, and Paul is uh, long gone to glory. But the question of where the Christian belongs, where the Christian should stand, is just as important today. Every Christian has a choice. Will I stand with the gospel, opening my heart to the cause of Christ around the world and around the corner, and letting my life follow, or will I distance myself from it, hold myself back? hedge my bets, one foot in the church with the gospel and the cause of the gospel, and the other foot in the world trying to do the spiritual splits. And Paul's appeal to them is Paul's appeal to us. Come join me. All of you, every part of you, <clears throat> open your hearts, come away from the world, and come be the people of God. So two appeals this morning. First, Open your hearts. 6, 3 to 13, and then 7, 2 to 4. Open your hearts. We find the apostle here at perhaps his most vulnerable. Can you hear it there in verse 11? Have a look down with me, would you, at verse 11. I do have a Bible open so that you can check what I'm saying. Have a look at verse 11. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. Now, I think if I'd been in uh, Paul's position, treated so badly by people I'd loved so deeply, I might by this point be looking to protect myself from further pain, closing myself off, pulling myself away. That's the natural reaction, isn't it, to being hurt by someone else. But after all of their disloyalty, all of their ingratitude, the ease with which they've believed lies about the apostle, his heart is still wide open. And there's a lesson there, isn't there, for us about gospel ministry. If you want to love other people with the gospel, you're going to get hurt. And people outside the church may hurt you, but the people who can really hurt you are inside the church, aren't they? The people that you think of as friends, people who are to you family, brothers, sisters. They're people in whom perhaps you've invested hours and weeks and months and years. 
of people for whom you've prayed and loved and spent time with and sacrificed for and bravely spoken the truth to, even at the risk of your friendship. Having them turn their back on you, disappointing you, believing lies about you, saying terrible things about you. One of my pastors as I was growing up said uh, at one point that he could take any kind of criticism from those outside the church, but what kept him awake at night were the slings and arrows from his fellow Christians. You don't have to be a pastor to feel that. You just have to be a Christian. Isn't that true? The closer we are, the more it hurts. So perhaps there's here a reminder to us to be kind to each other as a church family. That we're allowed to disagree about all sorts of things. That's natural. You don't get this kind of group of people together of this size without some disagreement. That's normal. But in every disagreement, be kind and gentle. If you must wound someone, if you really must say something hard to someone, do it carefully. And where we've been on the receiving end, where we've been hurt by a fellow Christian, let's ask the Lord to help us to keep our hearts open to each other. Paul here is only imitating his master, isn't he? Remember the Lord Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, the, the city that ought to have received him had rejected him, and still the Lord's heart was open. His heart is still open to us today. So the, Paul, the, the ministry here we see is deeply vulnerable. It's also wonderfully commendable, isn't it? Verse 3 to 10 of chapter 6 sketches for us uh, in outline, a commendable ministry. This is the, the ministry he wants them and us to open our hearts to and then to imitate for ourselves. It's a ministry marked, notice, by commendable endurance. Did you see that there in verse 4? We commend ourselves in every way, verse 4, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. A commendable ministry keeps going when it gets tough, and it always does get tough, doesn't it? Maybe, maybe not riots and beatings, not at this church anyway, but rejection and disappointment, tiredness, frustration, commendable gospel workers keep going. John Samuel, who was senior minister here until July, used to compare gospel ministry, church ministry, to steering a ship through ice. He wasn't making a particular point about Duke Street. He was talking about gospel ministry in general. If you, if you want to serve Jesus and if you want to make a difference, it's going to be hard work. You'll always be cutting through ice of some kind. You'll face resistance and discouragement and all kinds of difficulty. Sometimes you will feel like giving up. This, this is true of all kinds of gospel ministry, not only specifically pastoral ministry, but, but I used to follow a man on Twitter who would regularly tweet on a Monday something like, pastors, it's Monday, don't resign. And he tweeted on a Monday because he knew the stats. Pastors are most likely to quit their job on a Monday. Why? Well, perhaps it's the come down after the excitement of a Sunday, or, or, or maybe Monday is when Satan likes to counterattack, or maybe it's that general sense that we can sometimes have in gospel work of futility. You know, you, you've poured your heart into something, whatever it is, whatever your particular expression of gospel ministry is, and, and you're not really seeing much of a result. Whatever the reason, the gospel workers... Pastors, small group leaders, personal evangelists, Christians in general, anyone involved with the gospel will be tempted to give up. Why do you think it is that Paul, several times in this letter, has talked about not losing heart? It's because gospel workers often lose heart. 
one of the most significant things that you can do in playing your part in gospel ministry is just to keep going, enduring. Whether it was a great Bible study or a flat one, keep going. Whether you're seeing great fruit or nothing much visible at all, keep going. Whether you feel that God is giving clear answers to your gospel prayers or not, keep going. Keep plodding. Endure. And endure in what exactly? Well, Paul then um, spells out the, the conduct of commendable ministry there in verse 6. His ministry was marked, and all authentic, true gospel ministry is marked, verse 6, by purity knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. He, he really cared for those he served. Truthful speech. He wasn't just going to tell lies to get a hearing. The power of God, God's work done in God's way with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. When he, when he went to battle for the gospel, his weapons weren't sharp tactics or cunning ploys or underhand methods, but integrity and righteousness and everything. Uh, there is, this reminds us, uh, more than one way of giving up on gospel ministry. You can give up by just stopping all activity, just don't do everything, stay on the sofa. Or you can give up on gospel ministry by changing how you go about it. Start to copy the world's methods and messages. Enduring means doing God's work in God's way like this. Renouncing disgraceful, underhanded ways. We do God's work in God's way. And if this kind of ministry seems unimpressive to the world around us, so what? Because here's something else Paul had, a commendable perspective on his ministry there in verse 8 to 10. The Lord had taught Paul to see him as God sees, not as the world sees, regardless of the world's review. Verse 8, honorable or dishonorable, slandered or praised. The world might treat him as an imposter, but he knew that he was true. He was known by God even if the world called him a no one. And yes, his ministry, he says, felt like death. But in Christ, he really lived. And yes, he had regular reason for sorrow, but always in everything. In Christ, reasons to rejoice. Desperately poor in the eyes of the world, but by sharing the gospel, making many fabulously rich, having nothing by the world's standards. And yet in Christ, in the heavenly realms, possessing everything that matters. This, says Paul, is commendable gospel ministry. Commended by God and and he says it should be commended, it should be embraced and imitated by you as well, Corinthians. And this is the kind of ministry that God is calling us to as a church. This is the kind of ministry that God will commend when the time comes. And Paul's asking us, will you, will you open your hearts to it? Will you give yourself to it? Will you throw your lives in this direction? Will you make this your business, your passion, your priority? Are you all in, or are you one foot in, one foot out? And if you're one foot in and one foot out, where is your other foot? Because the Corinthians' other foot, it becomes clear, was in the world. So here's Paul's second appeal and our final appeal this morning. Open your heart. Secondly, cleanse your lives. Cleanse your lives, 6, 14, 7, verse 1. The summary of the section is there in 7 verse 1. This is the application. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, we'll come back to what those are in a moment. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Bringing holiness 
to completion. In other words, they were half in, half out, wanting the praise of God and the praise of the world, wanting to live the gospel life and to live the worldly life as well. And this half in, half out living was expressed in an unholy relationship with unbelievers and the sorts of things they did. You see that there in verse 14. 6 verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, the image of uh, a yoke is taken from the world of farming, two animals uh, together pulling a plow and wearing a yoke on their shoulders. It it works uh, really well when the animals are matched in size and strength, and when they aren't, it doesn't. Uh, I I fear mentioning the Rugby World Cup, given how many South Africans we have here. Yes, well done. But just think of a rugby scrum, if that's your thing. Now, those mighty men binding themselves together and then pushing as one with all their might. They all need to be strong, they're equally yoked, equally suited to being in a scrum. If you put a weed like me in the front row, the scrum would collapse, and I'd be carried off on a stretcher, I think. (laughs) The Corinthians apparently here, instead of opening their hearts to Paul and to his ministry, were yoking themselves to, aligning themselves with, standing with unbelievers. Now, it might be that the, um, the unbelievers Paul has in mind here, in particular, were the superficial super-apostles. Perhaps they weren't Christians at all, that's quite likely. In which case, Paul is urging the Corinthians to to step away from them, to leave their business and to come join wholesale the gospel business. Separate yourselves, walk away from them. At the very least, he's calling them to walk away from their message, their teaching. Even if the super-apostles were somehow Christians, their teaching, it seems, weren't. Their message was a worldly kind of message, something that would go down well in the Vegas of the ancient world in Corinth. A sort of teaching that says that you can be a Christian and you can stay as Corinthian as you like. Come to Christ and stay as you are. Do all the things that you used to do. Come to Christ, stay yoked to the world. Come to Christ and do whatever you want with your body. This is still a wildly popular message today, isn't it? The most uh, popular so-called Christian speakers, the ones that get invited onto the BBC and onto comedy panel shows, will be the Christian speakers who tell people that they can live however they like. They'll preach and teach Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. It's a Jesus who says to a sinner, come as you are, and feel free to stay as you are. You notice that Jesus doesn't do that in the Gospels. In the gospel stories, Jesus meets sinful people right where they are, but when they meet him, they change. He gives them a new hatred of sin, a new love of righteousness, a new separation, a distinction from the world, a new relationship with God and with God's holiness. And Jesus says to us today, yes, come as you are, but you won't stay as you are. Jesus the Savior is Jesus the Lord. From the moment we bow to him, he begins to change us. He gives us a new identity, and that identity and the purpose that goes with it is radically different from the world around us. And that's the point Paul's driving home there, isn't it, in verses 14 to 16? See that? That series of contrasts. You see them there? Righteousness versus lawlessness, light versus dark, Christ versus Belial, a name for Satan, believer versus unbeliever, the temple of God versus idols. The the one can't have a partnership or fellowship or accord or to go into spiritual business with one another. 
believers in Christ, their identity and their fundamental life purpose, their business, are like chalk and cheese, oil and water, peace and war. They are radically different. And Christians are to live like it. Now, of course, someone will say, perhaps many of us will think, how are we supposed to Aren't we supposed to relate to the world around us? How can we reach the world with the gospel, which seems to be Paul's big driving passion, if we are to separate ourselves from it? Well, back in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, do have a look uh, at that later on if you like. Uh, Paul has carefully teased out the precise relationship the Christian is to have with the world. And you could boil down his teaching there to that phrase that Christians often use in this context. We're to be in the world but not of the world. We're to be in the world. We're to be living among unbelievers. The the message here isn't that we're to create some special commune for Christians only. That's not what he's saying. We're to be in the world. We're to work alongside unbelievers in in our secular workplaces and so on. We're to work for unbelievers in those jobs. We're to love unbelievers sacrificially. And yes, we're to share the gospel with every opportunity we have. We're to be in the world, but not like the world in the world, but radically different from the world. It's interesting, isn't it, that we often appeal to evangelism as the reason that we wouldn't want to be too different from the world, as though the best way to share Christ with unbelievers is by showing that we're no different from anyone else. But that's very strange thinking, isn't it? That's a very strange message. Come to Christ, and he'll make no difference to you whatsoever. Come to Christ, and you'll be just the same as you were before. Christ has made a huge difference. All the difference in the world to you if you're a Christian. He's completely transformed your fundamental identity. He's given you a completely new purpose in your life. Don't pretend you're the same as you were before. You're you're called here to be different from the world because you are different from the world. This is the point, isn't it, of those Old Testament quotations in in a row there, 16 to 18. Paul strings them together. He borrows from Leviticus and then Isaiah, and then we, we read that earlier, and then Ezekiel and then 2 Samuel. And in each case, the point is this, God's people are called to be different. So, for example, in Leviticus, God is spelling out how the people he's called out of Egypt are to be different. And the reason given here, given there, is that they're, they're to be his temple. They're his dwelling place. That's a difference, isn't it? And what a thought that is. In the Old Testament, the Lord lived with His people. He lived among His people. And in the center of the camp, a tent filled with the glory of the Lord, He lived among them, marking them off as His special people. That in itself was something to to be wonderfully proud about. Humbly proud, if that's the right way to put it. But in the new covenant, the Lord lives within His people. You, Christian, are a temple of the living God. When you go home, you go home as a temple of the Holy Spirit. When you go to work, you go to work as a temple of the Holy Spirit. When you honor God with your body, and when you dishonor God with your body, you do so as the dwelling place of Almighty God. What a thought that is. Aren't you different? You're not like the world around you. You're a temple of the living God. You are gloriously different. Therefore, verse 17, be separate, be different. Verse 17 there is from Isaiah 52, the the passage we read. And not this time leaving Egypt, but leaving exile in Babylon. And again, come out, he says, be different. Come be my people. Be, says the Lord, my family. Verse 18, I will be a father to you. You shall be my children, my sons and daughters. That's taken probably from 2 Samuel 7. 
and the Lord promising to King David that his offspring would be to God a son. Here, Paul uh, stretches it out. All in Christ now are God's children. Everyone in Christ becomes God's temple, God's son, God's daughter. We are the family of God in the world. We're different. We've been called out to be different. We are a called out people. If you break down the word church originally, it, it comes from those two words, called out. When we gather together like this, we're gathering as an alternative, a called out alternative to the world, the expression of a called out, a different kingdom, populated by different people, a holy people. God has made us different, so be different. Okay, what does that look like? Well, this passage is, I think, most regularly quoted or referred to in discussions on whether a Christian should marry a non-Christian. You might have had a conversation like that yourself. Now, on the one hand, this isn't, first of all, about marriage, is it? There's nothing, I don't think here, specifically about marriage in the passage or in the context, necessarily. And Paul does address that issue specifically in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7, where he tells Christians that if they marry, they should marry in the Lord. That is, they should marry a Christian. But the principle Paul's teaching here, that of being radically different in identity and purpose from the world around us, does have implications, of course, for uh, who we marry. A marriage is the closest human relationship, the closest human partnership on earth. Choosing to marry an unbeliever would be very strange given what Paul says in, there in verse 14 to 16, wouldn't it? To choose as a life partner someone with whom you can have no spiritual fellowship, no agreement on the most important things in life, a fundamentally different identity, a completely different purpose, no common sharing in Christ. That's very strange. And it's very, very hard, as many Christians who've gone that route or actually found themselves there through no fault or choice of their own will sadly testify. But as we've said, this isn't first of all about marriage. It's about the whole of the Christian life. Embracing the gospel and gospel ministry necessarily involves being distinct and morally separate from the world around us and from the sin that characterizes it. Not yoking ourselves with, not partnering with the world. Walking away from, here's a word we don't use very much anymore, walking away from worldliness worldliness, the business, the spiritual business of the world around us. Interesting that we don't really use that word anymore. Uh, to some of us, perhaps it sounds legalistic, and in the past maybe it has been. In some cultures today, perhaps it still is legalistic. As some of us may have been raised in, a, in an environment, a spiritual environment, where Christian living was boiled down to a set of simple, and we might say simplistic uh, rules, you know, don't go to the cinema, don't go to the pub, don't smoke. As the old advice to Christian young men went, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. <laughs> there we go, all the dating advice you need. <laughs> now, if we were raised in a, a church like that or a, a culture like that, where following Jesus was made to sound like a random list of do's and don'ts, if that's what worldliness was described as, defined as, perhaps it's understandable that we react against it. But I wonder whether that is our biggest problem these days. So when I look at my own life, I look at my own life, I need to ask myself, is my problem that I'm too concerned about worldliness or that I'm not concerned enough? 
Is my problem that I'm too unlike the world around me, or is my problem that I'm far too much like the world around me, really? And fine, following Jesus is much more than just being careful what I watch on TV or at the cinema, but it's not less than that, is it? Following Jesus is more than just being careful with alcohol, but it's not less than that, is it? Yes, simplistic legalism is bad, but holiness in God's eyes is wonderfully good. Look again with me at 7 verse 1. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I'm not saying we have to bring back the word worldliness, but perhaps in some areas we need to bring back the idea. Every defilement, everything improper for temples and children of the living God, every influence that defiles, every teaching that defiles, every habit that defiles. And when it comes to sin and holiness, God's people are to be incredibly picky. I don't know whether you're a picky eater. I try not to be, though there are a few foods that I just can't handle. This is a very Richmond thing to say, a very Richmond thing to confess, but, but I can't handle truffle. <laughs> I, just, I just can't do it. And they've put it on every menu uh, in every restaurant in all the world, it seems. And I have people in the church who consider themselves, pretend to be my friends, who, who try to sneak truffle into food that they often eat. We're to be like sin, like I find myself with truffle. Very, very picky. Very picky. Always looking to sniff it out, making sure it's not there. Bring holiness to completion. And notice again, Paul's offering up the fear of God as motivation. See that in 7 verse 1? Having such a deep reverence for our God that we don't care what the world thinks of us. He's called us to be holy, so holiness really matters. It matters enough to stop listening to those unhelpful influences, whatever the, the modern equivalent of a, a false teaching super-apostle might be, listening to those podcasts or reading those books which are drawing us away from the gospel and away from Christ and away from holy living. It, it matters enough to stop watching that TV series that everyone else at work is watching, knowing that it contains things that displease God and defile us. It matters enough to ask in every situation, what does it look like to be a dwelling place of God in this place? What would a son or a daughter of God do here? It matters because the Christian is different, gloriously so. A glorious temple, a glorious family. We're to be different. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Christian, you're called out of the world called to be God's glorious dwelling on earth, called to live a life of purity and holiness, free from worldliness, and to open your heart to his gospel cause. So as we finish, let me ask, where are you standing this morning? Are you standing with the world or are you standing with the gospel and its advance? You know, one of the most miserable ways to live is to have a foot in both camps. You experience that if you're a Christian. You're too aware of your glorious identity in Christ to really enjoy the sinful life the way others around you might be. 
too much of a conscience, too much experience of the grace of God to really enjoy sin to the full. But never really wholeheartedly committed to the, laws, to the Lord and the cause of his gospel enough to enjoy knowing him and being his. Never quite giving ourselves to his work, never knowing the satisfaction of a life given away for the gospel. Open your hearts wide to the gospel. You'll seem very strange in the eyes of the world, but wonderful in the eyes of your God. Dying will live. In sorrow, we'll be always rejoicing. We'll be poorer, but we'll make many rich in the Lord Jesus. We'll have nothing in the eyes of the world, but in Christ and in his glorious service, we'll have everything. Let's pray.